So if you have a Bible, you can open it to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It is good to be back with you guys. I was gone last week because we were in California visiting our family. And um, this is not an exaggeration at all. Ellie um, woke up the first morning in California and she was like annoyed right off the bat because she thought our kids were, uh, she thought our kids were being obnoxious because there was like a flashlight shining in her face with her eyes closed. And then she opened her eyes and she was like, nope, it's just the sun. It was seriously just the sun. (laughs) She was so unused to it. It just scared her, you know, so unnatural. Um, but we, um, but we made it back and we had a really good time and, um, we're all sick, of course. So I asked the first service who was sick and not a lot of them raised their hand, but I guess that's because sick people don't come to church, which I guess kind of makes sense. I do. So this is my sick hand, my coughing hand. This is my handshake hand. So if I shook your hand with this hand, it means I don't like you. Um, <clears throat> So we are talking, we're in a series right now called Why We Love the Church, and um, we've been talking about the things about the church that are so important, and what matters about the fact that we gather together, because there's a value to us collectively coming together every single week and actually doing this, this thing called church. Last week, Pastor Matt talked about the people of the church. And it, it, it may seem negative to talk about how hard it can be to gather together with the people, but the truth is that's how many of us often feel, that people and relationships in the church, they take time, they take effort, they can be messy, they can be costly, but the Bible tells us this matters, to be in community with these people, to be a family with these people, and so we do it because we see the value of it. This morning we're talking about why we love the church and the, specifically the theology of the church, or really the study of God, and really the study of his word. And his word tells us about not just who he is, but who we are. Um, in the year 325, that was a very big year for the Christian church, Constantine had become a Christian, and he made it legal to be Christians. In fact, he made it sort of the national religion, although no one's quite certain to the extent that that meant for the church. But what we do know is that it made it legal, uh, and it outlawed any kind of widespread persecution against Christians. So people could not be persecuted anymore for their faith. At least that was the law. This led to a tremendous growth in Christianity. We saw an explosion of growth in Christianity. And as a result of that growth and that explosion, we also saw a lot of heresy within the church. Because with all these new groups, there were inevitably going to be some who were not really teaching and and following and practicing the things that Jesus actually talked about. And so what Constantine did was he recognized at one point that there was a very serious example of this, and it was with this group called the Arians. And the Arians were people who believed that Jesus wasn't really God, that he was just a man who was born and was perfect, and he lived a perfect life, and he died, and it was a sacrifice, and that that was enough, that counted, but he wasn't really born of God, he was born of man. And uh, this was considered heresy, this was considered not biblical, and so Constantine gathered together people from all over Christendom, as it was called, it was this big wide group, this big wide geographic area. And so uh, we had people coming from all over, we had people who didn't get along very well. Many of the church leaders who came were coming after a series, a, a period of serious persecution, And and here's what that meant for the church. That meant that people, church leaders, were threatened and told, if you don't renounce your faith, you will be tortured, you'll be imprisoned, you'll be killed, your family members will be tortured, imprisoned, killed, all sorts of things. Your homes will be burned, your communities will be scattered, your churches will be destroyed. 
And so there were many leaders within the church who resisted this persecution. They said, I don't care what you throw at me, what you do to me, how you threaten me, I will not give in. And they didn't. And they suffered terrible persecution as a result of it. And then Christianity was made legal, and they sort of made it to the end of that season. But there were many uh, who understandably, I think, as a result of the persecution, they gave in. And they said, no, I don't think God would want me to die, or simply, I'm too afraid. And no, I can't, I can't stand up for this. I don't have the courage. And so they actually were, there were many who uh, gave in, and they were safe. They were protected. They were fine. And then Christianity became legal, and it was all okay. Many of those people repented. They came back to the church. They said, I realized that I was wrong, and I want to be a part of the fellowship of the believers again. And so believe it or not, when you get these guys in the room together, they're not always getting along. There were guys who, there was one pastor there who had had his arms cut off and cauterized, had his eyes burned out so that he could no longer read the Bible and teach it to the people of his church. And yet he was there at what was called ultimately the Council of Nicaea, this gathering of pastors. He was there along with pastors who gave in to persecution and now came back and were forgiven and we're fine, we're all in equal equal field now. How does that feel? There were also people there who were some of the Romans that were responsible for persecuting the Christians. Uh, Some of those who were responsible for giving orders to have this persecution done. And yet all these people came from very far, very wide, at great cost to themselves and their families and their churches and their communities so that they could come together and they could develop what was called the Nicene Creed. And the reason they did this, the whole reason they did this was ultimately so that they could determine and agree as the church, Jesus was God. And he wasn't just man. And it clearly meant a lot to them, and it was important. And they would ultimately then defend the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed. And if people would disagree with that, they would say, fine, disagree, but you can't call yourself a follower of Jesus or a Christian, because this is what all of the followers of Jesus believe, and this is what we've agreed upon. And you hear something like that, and you think, wow, that means that what you believe about God and Jesus, even in the specifics, is so important that people are willing to go to this length for it. Or you can hear that, and you can go... So is this just a bunch of like professors and theologians and Bible nerds who said, oh no, this stuff matters so much more than anybody else might think it does, that I'm willing to do all these things and go travel all this way so that we can agree upon something that maybe some of you think like, how big is the difference between those two things anyway? And yet we, we fail to recognize if we see that, that this continues to happen all the way to now. Our own denomination, our own group of churches was formed, the Evangelical Church of North America was formed uh, in the 60s during what we call the Methodist merger. Uh, and the reason was, was because a group of pastors and churches saw a merger with the Methodist church coming. And part of that merger was that we would sort of agree that the Bible was not itself inerrant, that it was not literally true in every sense. And, and they believed that that was a dangerous step to take. Enough so that pastors from all over the country left their home states, moved their families, gave up their positions in ministry. Many of them lost churches. Families were divided because there were so many who said, we believe in the Bible and its, inherent, and its inerrancy enough that we are willing to change everything about our way of living and our life to be able to both defend it and have a group that practices it. And um, ultimately, what would happen is people, entire churches of people would actually even be forced to buy back their own buildings. If the whole church decides we want to be a new thing, a new group, the evangelical church, they would have to get together and buy back the building that was already owned 
because it was technically under the name of this other group. These are the great lengths that people would go to, even not that long ago, even right here in this, own, in this very building, when they decided we want, to be, we want to be able to stand on the Bible as something that is inerrant and something that is literally true. And what this tells us is this. It tells us that the Bible matters. We know the Bible matters. And what we're talking about this morning is why we love the church, because it is in the church, it is in this gathering each week that we come together and we hear, we learn, we understand, and we work as hard as we can to apply what we see in the Bible. We love the church because it is a place where we can gather together around this. From the very beginning of the early church, we saw them gather together primarily for the apostles' teaching and to worship collectively as a group of believers. They gathered to worship and to learn from the apostles. And they had it pretty good. They had guys who knew the Old Testament very well and had lived Jesus. They had lived experiences with Jesus, and they could, they could give accounts of these things firsthand to some of these early churches. And that was what they taught on. And you, you had no understanding of those things outside of what you heard that week. And then as that original first group would pass away, you would have bishops and pastors who would go on to, again, the gathering would be devoted to them explaining what the Bible says about things, how we live, who God is. And this was always a central part of what it meant to come together as the church. And now even today, as we have Bibles everywhere, we have apps on our phones, we can um, look it up any way we want. We have books that help us understand this book. We have podcasts and sermons that we can listen to about this book. Um, it is so easy for us to believe, I think, that to understand the Bible means to simply sit down by myself and look at it rather than to come together collectively to study it more closely. But what we see is that this is one of the reasons why we really, really love this, this group, the church, because we get to come together over this thing once a week. And we do that, and it's important. We're looking at 2 Timothy this morning. Paul writes this letter to Timothy. I can relate a lot to this guy because he's a young pastor, especially younger than almost everybody else in his church, it looks like. And he is uh, coming into this church. Paul's a sign in there in Ephesus. It's a, it's a pretty big deal church. Um, it's a large church. It's in a large city. And it's a church in a city that has undergone a lot, of, um, a lot of this false teaching. There's a ton of influence coming from outside the church to believe different things. And there's a ton of, there's a ton of people in Ephesus who probably want to teach these things that are kind of similar to Christianity, but off in some major enough way that it's not really orthodox teaching. And so Paul writes a letter and he gives advice to Timothy. I, I find this, the, this is in a group of, of letters called the pastoral epistles. I read through these right before I started as a lead pastor here. Uh, and it was because there's no point that I think I'm going to read uh, something in the Bible that is so specific to being in leadership in the church, especially if you're young. And that's what we associate with Timothy. And Paul's writing to Timothy about what is, it seems, the most important thing to him, and it's the Bible. And he says this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 15. Paul says, but as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying to Timothy, 
that you've learned something, and you learned it very young in your life. And the reason that he emphasizes this is because earlier on in the letter, he reminds Timothy of how important in his faith his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, were. That these two women had a huge part in raising him, and as a result, he learned Scripture, this sacred text from early on. (coughs) That's going to be loud in the podcast. Sorry. (coughs) I should warn them. Okay, it's coming. Oh, there we go. Now, this is something that matters a lot because he's saying to him, you have learned this word, and this word makes you wise. It is not the numbers of years you have lived that makes you wise. This is good news for young people. It is not the numbers of years you have lived that makes you wise. It is not experience on this earth that make you wise. It is understanding the word that ultimately makes you wise because the word is breathed by God and that means that uh, wisdom, the Bible tells us, is the beginning of wisdom is fear of God. So you can live a long life, you can go through all kinds of different experiences and things in life, but if you don't have the wisdom that comes from understanding the Bible, then you really don't have true wisdom. Now what we see in Timothy, it's coming. (coughs) That's better. I'm not actually crying as I'm talking. It sounds like I'm like getting really choked up. I just love the Bible. Um, he's talking to Timothy, and there's something unique about Timothy, and this is really incredible. Timothy is the first recorded account that we have in the New Testament of a second-generation Christian. He grew up in the church. He grew up in a Christian family. Eunice and Lois helped raise him, and what that means is that he grew up from day one totally familiar with what Paul calls sacred writing, sacred text. And if you grew up in the church, or you are growing up in the church, or if you have grown up in the church for most of or all of your life, then you know what it's like to have all this familiarity with these texts that are supposedly incredibly sacred. These are old, these are thousands of years old, and they were written directly by people who were inspired by God himself. This text is sacred and it is important and it matters, but you've known of it since you were born. You're so familiar with it. And Timothy has the same kind of familiarity. And Paul's saying to him, he's saying, he's saying, these things that you are so familiar with since you were very, very young, keep these things close to your heart and continue in what you have firmly believed. Keep going and believing these things. It will be easy to go astray, especially if you're familiar with these things. And for some of us, we encounter God's word, the Bible, at some point in life where it just changed everything for us. And we soaked it up and we drank it up and we're like, oh man, this is so good. Oh, this is, I can't believe all the things I'm reading and I'm learning from this. And it's this exciting thing and that's really great. But for many, it's not that. It's something that you are so familiar with and it's been around for so much of your life that you struggle to just continue on in the things that you've learned. You struggle to just stick with this sacred text that is breathed out by God. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, if nothing else, what you do in leading this church in being a shepherd is hold to the things, continue on the things that you have learned. And he says to him, and this is huge, especially if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're a pastor, if you're someone, a shepherd, who is teaching these things to someone else. He says, remember who you learned them from. And he's not just talking about himself, Paul. He's saying, you ought to look back to your mom, and you, your mom Eunice and your grandmother Lois, and you ought to say, you know what? When I struggle to believe this, when I struggle to make sense of it in my life today, I look back on the person who taught it to me, and I say, I can trust this because a person I trust gave it to me. 
I mean, like more than anything else, I would want my kids to be able to say that to me. I want them to be able to say of me, I trust him, and so I trust this thing. And that when I'm caused to want to doubt it or be skeptical of it, it doesn't mean I'll believe blindly everything told to me, but it means that I know that it comes from a person who is trustworthy. And that's what Paul says. He says, you could trust them, believe in these things. But you run the risk of becoming too comfortable with the Bible. And so remember the value of it. And Paul goes on and he tells him something. And this is something that is so sort of iconic in terms of where the Bible talks about itself. And it's huge. And it's just two short verses. And he says this to him. He says, all scripture, this is why he should go on to believe this thing he's learned, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says to him, all scripture is breathed out by God. And because of that, it is profitable. All scripture is profitable. And he says it's profitable in several specific ways. And he's right about these four ways. The first one he says is, it teaches you. You can look out in creation and you can see that there is a God and you can see that there is a right and there is a wrong way of doing things and you can see the idea of justice and the idea of love and you can see God's fingerprints upon those things and and know that someone is behind this. But what teaches us about God? What teaches us about these things? What teaches us about us because we're a part of his creation? The Bible. And first and foremost, he says to Timothy, you look at this thing which is profitable and breathed out by God because it can teach you. More than any other book, more than any other text, more than any other thing, it is what teaches you about the way things are. It tells us about the very character and nature of God himself, and it tells us about his kingdom and the way that it works. It tells us about us and the way that we work and who we are. And he goes on and he says, it's profitable for reproof. And reproof is another way of saying rebuke, which is a word we all love. We all love rebuking, right? We all love to be rebuked. We all love rebuking somebody maybe. But he says it's, it's profitable for rebuke. Now, rebuke is a one-sided thing. That's why we love it so much. You can rebuke a brick wall. You can be like, stop it, brick wall. You're too rigid. You need to be more flexible, right? You can say that to a brick wall. You're successfully rebuking a brick wall. It doesn't have to do anything bad. It doesn't have to hear you or agree with you. It can punch you if it wants to. And, uh, and that's it. You rebuked it. You were successful. Now, what's so interesting about this, what, what really means a lot about this uniquely that he's using this word is this same thing is what Paul tells Timothy, and this is what I don't like about, about what Paul tells Timothy, is he says to him, you're not allowed to rebuke or to reprove people who are older than you in the faith. You have to encourage them as you would a brother. Oh, right? So he's telling a guy who's younger than like almost everybody that you just can't rebuke people. You can't rebuke these people. And if Timothy comes back, he's like, okay, well, like, what's the rule? Can we get some kind of a rule here? Can we say like how long they've been a Christian or maybe like how much money they give to the church? I don't know what. And he's like, if they're older than you, you can't rebuke them. Oh, that's everybody. So if, if, if you, if you are older than me and you catch me rebuking you, right? And you just be like, stop it. Stop it. Stop rebuking me. Open up the Bible. Find it there. 
and then we'll talk, right? And then I'll be like, oh, God, it's got to be in here. It's got to be in here somewhere. And you'll be like, no, that's not close enough. I'm like, oh, what about this? No, that's not good enough, right? I told the first service, I'm going to invent an app, and that's going to what it's going to do. It's going to be called, like, going to be called, like, Timothy for pastors. And it'll be for young pastors, and they'll type in, like, you know, like, being mean to me, or, or somebody stole my parking spot, and then it, like, gives you a verse on it, and you go, like, I'm going to rebuke you. Anyway, okay. I think it's a really good idea. I don't care if you guys don't like it. You're not pastors. Um, rebuke is something that Timothy himself is not allowed to do personally with people. He is only to encourage them. But the word of God, the Bible, which is profitable, which is breathed out by God, is able to rebuke people. And what does that mean? It means this is how we are rebuked. This is how we receive reproof. We receive it from here, from God's word. And, and, and it comes from there, and it comes from authority. You could be rebuked by all kinds of people, but when does it matter? It matters when you're being rebuked by someone in authority, someone in authority over you. And so when you find it in the Bible, you know it's for real. And you go, oh, this means something. This has some weight behind it. You can choose to ignore the rebuke. You can choose to pretend like you didn't hear it or see it, come across it. But that doesn't mean that it isn't there and that it doesn't happen. And he tells Timothy, basically through this, like the word is how people will receive that rebuke, not through you personally pointing your finger at them. And I think that's a pretty good rule for all of us, to be honest. I'm not just saying that because I'm stuck with it. I think that's a pretty good rule for all of us. He goes on and he says that it's profitable for correction. Again, we love this, right? Who doesn't love correction? Correction is basically this. I'm heading in one direction and now I have to head in another one. And that's a really frustrating thing to go through. Because you don't feel like you're making very much progress. You don't feel like you're going in a straight line. You were really excited about the direction you were going in maybe. And then uh, God's word comes along and it says, you know what? Go this way instead. You believe this, believe this instead. It's not quite this, it's this over here. And we talked about the definition of wisdom a few weeks back being a straight line. Proverbs describes wisdom as walking a straight path. It just takes less time. It's just easier to be wise. And you'll go straight ahead. But the unwise person, the foolish person, is the person who's constantly just doing this because they have to learn from mistake after mistake. They're constantly dealing with correction. But that correction comes from the Bible. And that's why it's profitable and breathed out by God. There's a passage in the Bible where we are taught by Jesus himself that if, you, um, if you're giving, he says to, to, to his followers, he says, if you're giving your gift at the altar at a service, and you're praying there at the altar and you're giving this gift to God and you realize, you remember that you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you, then stop what you're doing, go and be reconciled to that person and then come back, right? That's correction, okay? If, if you've ever experienced that or felt that, if you've ever been taking communion or, or something like that, or you've been praying after a service even just at the altar here, and you have been convicted and gone, I am not good with somebody. And even though I'm right, because I'm always right. And that's what's so frustrating about other people. And that's why community's hard, right? Because I'm always right and they're not. I still can go to them and I can, I, can, I can say my part and I can try to bring peace to this thing. And I'm not gonna be able to give my gift at the altar. I'm not gonna be able to even participate in the Lord's Supper maybe if I don't feel, like if I don't know that I did that. That's correction. And that's not fun all the time. But ultimately it's good and it's necessary. I deal with a lot of anxiety, and you're going to hear about it for a while until I stop dealing with it, so deal with that. But, um, you know, th this works the same way with anxiety. I read, all the, I read all the books on it. You can talk to all the people in the world on it, but you open up a Bible, and it says very clearly, don't be anxious. Don't be fear is the single greatest command. 
Don't be anxious. And why does the Bible say not to be anxious? Number one, it doesn't help. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything to help you. Worrying. Worrying doesn't do anything to help you. And it turns out after hundreds of years of research, scientifically, this has been proven and corroborated. It does not appear to do you any good to worry more about things ever. So God is right about that one. Other thing he says is, here's the deal. I know way more about what you're going through than you do. And I love you. I know the hairs on your head. I know the number of days in your life. And I love you. So don't worry. That's correction. That's correction if you're worried. That's correction if you're prone to anxiety and fear, if you feel insecure about things. And this God-breathed text is profitable, Paul says to Timothy, because it gives us that, and we need that. And the last thing he says is it trains us for righteousness. Now, pastoral epistles are written for people in leadership, but uh, what we see about people in leadership on any level any kind of shepherding, any kind, and unfortunately, you're in the wrong place if you don't like the idea of shepherding, because we talk a lot, we're talking a lot right now, especially about the call that, we, that has been put on us, all believers, to shepherd people, to shepherd those around us, that, 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 that the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few, that the sheep are in need of a shepherd. And so if you're an L in that position, in that situation, then the standard for that person is very simple, and it's laid out in the pastoral epistles. The first one is to have sound doctrine, to believe the right things, to, to take pains and to actually make effort to know that what you believe is the right thing, that it's what is in this God-breathed book and this text that is sacred. And the other thing is, is godly living. You got to believe the right things and you got to live it out. Godly living. This isn't just about trying, being a good person and doing the right things and being loving and compassionate and being nice and all those things and being a hard worker and being disciplined and being respected by everybody around you, but that having nothing to do with what you believe. You are to have godly living and it is to be, it is to be coupled with right doctrine. And where do we get all that from? That's training in righteousness. And so, and so the other thing that this text does, Paul tells Timothy, is it actually trains us. It teaches us how to live, how to be righteous, which is important. There's a couple of functions that the Bible serves, and we see that here. It's outlined very well. And there's these common metaphors that are given for the Bible, and they're ones that help us grasp in our mind, kind of get a mental image of why it's so important and why we need it and the function that it serves in our lives. The first one is this. The Bible is a window. The Bible is a window, and that window looks out to God, and it looks out to his kingdom. So we live our lives in these rooms and these things that we construct for ourselves, in these echo chambers where we surround ourselves with people who agree with us and are like us. And then there's a window in that room, and you can't control what's outside that window most of the time. If you, uh, if you were to look around our pastoral staff, you'd notice that there are those on staff who seem generally more happy and carefree and optimistic and laid back. And then there are those of us who are kind of grumpy and depressed and work extra hard and are constantly struggling with discouragement. That's because Justin and Dave have windows. And they get to look out. Amen. Yeah. Dave's got like this 
big window in his office and I go in there all the time and I'm just like, I never want to leave. And Justin, like, he made this whole thing about like, how should I put my desk? Should I put it here? Should I put it here? Should I put it here? He put it exactly where he did because he can look out and see his dogs. And I'm like, that, the, you get to look out and see your dogs every day. I love my dog and I want to see him every day, but I can't. I look out my window and I see a hallway. That's what I see when I look out my window, okay? And so a lot of times I just close it, to be honest. Yeah, thank you. Gosh, it's not easy being us. Pastor Sue, she's got like a little window in her door, you know? Matt's got a window out to another random hallway where he can see people coming from like 10 miles away, and at least he can close it and lock his door and maybe run out the kitchen. But, (laughs) sorry, I just spoiled that for you. He's been doing that. That's why I never see you, yeah. I always see those blinds close right when I walk up. The ability to see out and to see what's outside, to see what's out there is a huge thing for us. And, and, and the Bible is that. Because in order for us to know who God is, to know about his kingdom, we gaze out this window and we see that thing every time we are in the Bible and we're looking for it. And it is a view that is so much better than any view that we can afford in the nicest house and the nicest place on this earth. It is a view that is the mountains and the forest and the beaches combined. It is something that you could sit and stare at all day and it would be therapeutic for your soul because you would be drinking in the absolute most beautiful and best things about creation. That is what it is to look outside the window and to see God. But we choose to look outside the window. And many of us, when we're honest, don't want to look outside the window. We don't want to see outside of our room. We don't want to see outside of the way we want to believe that things often are. We want to believe that we're the center of our universe and that it's all about us. But the truth is that what we see in the Bible is so valuable, we see a window to who God is. And we're not going to see who God is without his word. That doesn't mean he can't show up other places and speak to us other places through the Holy Spirit, through prayer, through worship, through community with other people. But what we read about in the Bible is who God is. And if we ever encounter something that is different from that, it's not who God is. It has to line up with that thing because it is a window through which we can see clearly to God. And what we see is that it's not just a window in the middle of the night. Because the other thing that the Bible does for us that we read about again and again is you read about it in verses like this, Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. That's good news for those of us who are simple, right? That's good because we want understanding and we're simple. God's word gives light. It imparts light. And what does that mean? The unfolding of his word giving light? This is probably the most common metaphor for the Bible in the Bible, which is it's light. It illuminates things. Those things were already there. If you look out a window in the middle of the night and you can't see anything, it doesn't mean nothing is there, in case you didn't know that. The reason the dark is so scary, especially for little kids, is because you don't know what's in the dark. There's endless possibilities of what could be in that space that you cannot see. And so your imagination goes crazy and you freak out about all the things that could be there. And then when the lights come on, you see what is there. And it's usually not as scary as what you think could be there. 
And so not only do we see through a window, but the Bible turns on the lights. It is like the sun rising upon the horizon that we see, and we can now see what is there. And that's what the Bible does for us. It doesn't make things appear that weren't there. It says it's all been there all along. It's all been this way. You just have to open your eyes and you have to see that it's there. And if you don't see it, then how can you experience it? And how can you live literally in light of that thing? I want to read from Psalm 119 in a few more verses. I'm not going to put them up here, but Psalm 119 is really long. But it talks a lot about the benefit of the word. It says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. To your testimonies are my mediation, meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This psalmist is not bragging and saying I'm arrogantly smarter and better than everyone else on the planet. They're saying that, that it isn't about having all the knowledge of the teachers and the knowledge of the, of the people who have lived the longest. It isn't about uh, knowing what your enemy is going to do next so that you can defeat them. It isn't about any of those things. Your word is a lamp and a light unto my feet. And because it illuminates what's before me and everyone else without it is stumbling around in the dark, then I need it more than I need all of those things. And it is more valuable to have than all those things. If there is anything that you understand as deeply as possible, it's the Bible. Because it is God's breathed. Because it's a window. And the more you understand it, the more you can see. But this is hard for so many of us because in honesty, we struggle. Man constantly struggles to not make God in his own image. We constantly struggle to not want to make God who we want him to be, which is usually a reflection of how we want to live ourselves and who we want to be. And so why would I not look out the window and see who's really out there, see what's really out there? Because as long as I don't, I can decide for myself what I think is really out there. And I cannot tell you how often I talk with people who are putting such great effort into just trying to figure out themselves with the window shades drawn Who's out there and what's out there without actually just looking for themselves? But when you look, you don't really get to decide what you're going to see. And that's hard for many of us because we want to make God in our own image when we're honest. You know, in some parts of the world, like the one in which we live, we really struggle with certain characteristics and things and aspects about God, about his kingdom. Here in the Western world, especially in America, we really struggle to believe in the justice of God. The idea that people can be so depraved that they can, um, that they can ultimately be judged and be eternally separated from God without the forgiveness of Jesus. We really struggle with that. We struggle with the idea that there is wrath of God and that people actually deserve it, that we deserve that wrath. And never mind the fact that every time you look at the news, you see things that seem to confirm just how messed up we are. People hiding boa constrictors in their attic and not telling their husbands about it for 40 years. I mean, we're messed up, but we struggle to really believe, really be sold on that idea 
And so when we read about it in the Bible, I talked about that a few weeks ago, if you're confused, look it up. Um, If we read in the Bible about the justice of God and the depravity of man, we struggle with that. And yet you go to some other parts of the world where people are living in conflict. They've been subjected to to tyrants and dictators. They've been oppressed by people who have done things that are unspeakably evil compared to what we would, any of us would ever deal with. And for them, the struggle is not in the justice of God and what people deserve and the depravity of man. Their struggle is in believing in the grace of God. Why, God, would you ever forgive any, any of these people? Why could someone be as evil as this person, as this regime, as this group of people? And you could still possibly forgive them if they repent. We struggle to believe things about God, and it makes us less likely to want to look out that window and see who he is. But we ought not to stop doing that, because the Bible is that for us. It's a a window to God, and it is illuminated. The lights are on when we see it. The other thing that the Bible is, is the the Bible's a mirror. The Bible is a mirror. It's a window to God, and it's a mirror of us. We look in the Bible and we see what is true of ourselves. When I was a kid, I lived a couple blocks away from my grandparents. And every Saturday night, my grandma and grandpa would go to mass. They were Catholic. And we would be there sometimes hanging out when they were getting ready. And my grandma took a while to get ready. Very pretty lady. And she took a lot of pride in how she looked at mass. Um, And so she would bring all of her stuff, her makeup and all of her apparatus into the kitchen. And she would, uh, I think that's the right word. And she would put it on the table. And I remember two things specifically. One, she had the biggest hair dryer I'd ever seen. It would look like a giant dome, like an egg. And she would open it up and it would come out on like a crane. It would be like on a crane and it would sit over her head and then she would just turn it on, you know, and she would sit there doing her makeup. And I don't think she could hear us. She seemed to like, you know, acknowledge that she could hear us. But I mean, it's a very effective way to dry your hair. She totally did it and it worked. But, and because my grandma took really good care of everything, it was like, you know, you could have sworn she bought it yesterday, but I think she bought it in like the 60s or the 70s. I remember she had that and she had this mirror and it was this round mirror, and it stood up on these little legs. And, you know, you sit there and look at your face while you're putting on your makeup, if you're my grandma. Um, and, uh, and, you, and it also, on this mirror, it was very helpful, it had a light that would light it up. And one of the cool things about the mirror, I realized a couple weeks into her doing this, was if you flip the mirror over, there was another side to the mirror. There was a magnified mirror. And that thing is freaky because you flip it over and the moment you do, it's always the nose. That's what you see first. So you flip it over and you're like, whoa, like I am seeing way too much of the inside of my nose right now. And the light turns on if you flip it all the way, like you have to flip it all the way and then the light turns on. You're like, oh my, oh no, oh no. Tell me that's not true. Tell me that's a picture. Tell me that's not, that's not the mirror, right? And, and, and you can see every little pore and every little imperfection, and I guess that's a good thing, you know, if you really want to see that closely, but not a lot of us want to see that closely, right? You talk about the Bible, you say it's a mirror to us, and the truth is the Bible is very much that thing. In fact, not only is it a mirror, but it, it zooms in really close if you let it. And that light turns on, just like it does when we look out the window, and it illuminates the stuff that's there, and that is uncomfortable for a lot of us. The fact that you could open up this sacred text, this God-breathed book, and you could read things that illuminate you better than any mirror that you could physically look in in the world. God's word shows us what we are all about. It shows us what we should be doing and how we're meant to live. And it illuminates things that would otherwise be brought be into darkness. There, we read about in the New Testament again and again this language of light. 
and Jesus being light and the word being light. But that language is used to mean not just that it illuminates stuff that we need to have knowledge of, it illuminates sin. We read about things like, oh, sleep arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The idea that those who are followers of Jesus are the people of God, they will walk in the light and they will no longer walk in darkness. But they will let the light, it says expose. And that word expose, it's a word that literally means you expose someone for the crime that they've committed. You expose someone for the wrong thing that they've done. And so light in the New Testament so often talks about simply turning a light on the bad stuff. And what the Bible says is it says that as long as that stuff is kept in darkness, and we all know what it's like to keep those things in darkness, to keep the stuff about ourselves that we don't like and we're not proud of and we know is probably wrong in darkness, it says it will stay there. And that and the, and the, you can't work on that with God. You can't, you can't give that over to him. You can't expect that thing to change as long as you keep it in darkness. And we have a tendency to think that if we keep it in darkness long enough, we'll get a handle on it. It'll go away. It'll probably not be that bad. And sometimes maybe it does. But most of the time, it's not until we turn the light on. And what the Bible says is the moment that you expose it to light, it loses power. It loses power to the enemy. It loses power from the enemy over you, and you're no longer a slave to that thing. And so turn the light on, even though it hurts and it's scary and you feel vulnerable and you feel naked when you turn the light on this mirror that's zoomed in on you. It isn't until you do that that you can actually be free from something and God can take it away from you. And so the question for us, just like the question, do you really want to see what's outside that window, is do you really want to see yourself? And most of us, I mean, let's write mirror, no thanks, right? Walk right by, okay? I'll look at the mirror as little as humanly possible, as little as I need to, just, you know, just do whatever and, and I'm done, right? If I can do it without looking in the mirror, I would. Many of us, we get to a point in life where like, I don't need any of these mirror things anymore, right? We don't want to look in the mirror. We don't like what we'll see. We don't like ourselves to begin with. Why does the world even have to have mirrors, and the truth is, this has nothing to do with objectively the way you actually look. I saw some post on the internet the other day, and it was about how this woman, who was like a 26-year-old fitness person, she got lymphoma, and then it caused her to want to get into shape and start weightlifting. And so there's a picture of her before, and this person looks like a, like a perfectly crafted human being, and that's the before picture. And then the after picture, she has bigger muscles. And it's like, look at what happened when I finally took control of my life. I I, 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 and it says, it says, I was like, Ellie, I'm going to show you this. You're going to get really mad when I show it to you. And I showed it to her. And she was like, I, she threw my phone. She threw it right at the, Barry caught it. It was fine. But she, she, it said, it said, I used to hate my body. And it's like, what? Right? But that's what's so crazy about us is, is you can look fine. You can look so good that other people are jealous of you and they don't like how they look because of you. But it's still, you still don't want to look in the mirror. Because when you look in the mirror, you're going to see all the little imperfections and all the things that other people don't know about. For many of us, the act of looking in the mirror is really painful because you just don't like yourself. Because you feel guilty, you feel shame, you feel simply like you're ugly. Or many of us are prone to believe things that are just lies. We believe lies about ourselves and we excuse it away and we say other people believe those lies about themselves. Everyone seems to, so I believe it about myself. And we let ourselves believe these things and we know that the moment that we look in the mirror, we'll see what's really there. And we're so comfortable believing those lies and we're too afraid to accept the truth that we don't let ourselves. I am broken, we say. I am worthless. I am a failure. I should be afraid. The more we look into the mirror, the better we get at knowing who we really are and who we're really meant to be. 
We don't have to be confused about our identity. We don't have to be confused about our purpose. We don't have to be confused about our values. We don't have to be confused about our significance because these things are shown to us and they don't change every 10 years. But if all we do is look at ourselves in the mirror, then we become self-absorbed. And we all know that person. We become self-absorbed. And if all we see in the Bible is us, then we become totally self-absorbed thinking that we are the center of the universe and the purpose of this thing is to make me better so that I can be perfect all the time. Yet the more we look out the window, the better we get at identifying God. The more we know what is real, the more we know what is good. The more we recognize these things, just like getting to know any other person. Everybody in my house is sick right now. And one of the first things I learned when I got married, and it took me way too long to figure this out, even though it was the first thing. So like I, learned, I, I saw it first, but it took me forever to learn it, was we don't like the same things, Ellie and I, when we are sick. Uh, here's the thing, okay? I love my wife, and so when she's sick, I do for her what I believe anybody would want someone to do for them. I completely ignore her, and I leave her totally alone. <laughs> right? Because that's what we all want when we're sick, right? And when she, and when I'm sick, she's always bringing me stuff. She's always trying to touch me. She's always trying to be close to me. She's always trying to help me. And I'm like, what are you doing? No one wants that. Everyone knows that, right? And it turns out that she doesn't want the same things that like my dad wanted when he would come home from work early and just climb under his covers and be this dark lump in a dark room for three days and then come out and be fine. And that I didn't want the kinds of things that Ellie's sisters wanted when she was growing up. But, but the way it works getting to know people, and it is the same looking out the window and getting to know God with all of the things that are about him and that are true of him, is that you have to truly get to know the depth of a person. And you get to realize that there's a lot to them and that there's a lot to learn about them. And this is what it is to really know someone. I'm not going to look this up, but... Um, at the end of Matthew, or in Matthew, in the beginning of it, chapter 4, Jesus is tempted. And it's, I would encourage you to look this up when you get home today or tomorrow and to read it. Because this is when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's starving and he's, and he's really dying. And he's, no, no, he's not dying, but he's starving and he's alone. And he's, and he's dying in the sense that we would feel like this is, I'm hungry and I'm alone and I'm thirsty and I'm weary. And the enemy comes to him and the enemy says all these things to him. He tempts him by distorting God's word. And the way that Jesus responds and he fights back, it's very, very simple. He fights back by simply quoting scripture to Satan. He fights back by saying, no, this is what is true of God and his kingdom. And is that not the craziest thing, the idea that Jesus himself, when fighting the enemy, fought by simply stating, here's what's true about God. That we could actually do that, that we could actually fight things and deal with things by simply knowing what is true about God and stating that thing. For the last couple of months, I was dealing, especially a few months ago, um, I'm totally fine and normal now, of course, but I was dealing with all this anxiety, and it was so bad that I was, I took a few weeks off, and Ellie made me a prayer room. This was actually something I did need, and I did appreciate, um, and this prayer room had a chalkboard, and it was like in our attic. It was really cool, and I would go in the prayer room, and I would, and I would like pray, you know, that's the idea, and uh, she gave me a chalkboard with some chalk, a little bowl of chalk, and you write verses and stuff on it, I guess. I mean, I think that was what it was for, and uh, and. And I only wrote one verse on it because until I could get this one verse down, there was no other verse to get down. And it was because I was so consumed with worry and so consumed with fear and concern about these things that I was afraid of in my life. And at one point, God brought me to Psalm 141. And I want to read part of it to you as we close this morning. Psalm 141. I took my placeholder out. 
Psalm 141 says this. The first thing that I read about that it said was it said, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. And I read that and I thought to myself, I have all these people in my life from the church and my friends who are telling me in this time what is true, what is true, and what I should believe of God and that the things I'm worried about and believing are not true. And I, w- I didn't want to believe them. And I struggled to believe them. But the truth is that the word of a friend, the rebuke even of a friend, that we bring to one another here in the church, that you hear here every time we gather together, it is actually a blessing to you. And even though it hurts sometimes, you should trust it. And then the next thing that I read is this. It says, but my eyes are toward, toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. In you I seek refuge, leave me not defenseless. And I wrote this one verse on the board, and I said, if I can't get this, then I, I don't have any business moving on. And it was simple. It was if I really believe that God is my refuge, that I can trust him, this thing that we throw out all the time so easily, then it means that I am not in any way going to defend myself ever. And it means that God is my defender. And so my prayer to him is this, God, in you I seek refuge, Please don't leave me defenseless because that's how I feel. I feel defenseless without you. And I hate that feeling. That feeling of not being able to protect myself, not being able to take care of things and accomplish things on my own. But the truth is, this is real. That God says, point your eyes to me and let me be your refuge. Not all this other stuff that you're trying to find refuge and safety and security and comfort in. All these plans that you don't even know if they'll work out and these circumstances you don't have any control over. Look to me as your refuge and our prayer then is let me not be defenseless. This is what this God-breathed book can do. It can respond to and answer all of the things that we face and deal with in life. And we love the church because we gather around this thing all the time. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for you for your word, for the fact that it is breathed out by you. God, there are so many reasons why it is hard for us to come to the Bible. And for many of us, we've been around it for so long in our lives that we're so familiar that it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget how significant, how sacred it is. My prayer for those is that they would have a renewed desire for the Bible, for your word, that they would see how it brings life. And for those who have discovered it only recently in their lives, I pray that you would keep that passion burning and help them look not to other books, not to other people, not to other things, but first to your word and have a faith that is built on that, God. Lord, your word says that we worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. In the words of the old, old, old traditional song or poem, the (laughs) B-I-B-L-E, that's the one for me, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. God bless you guys, have a great week.